Welcome to Cerebronas. I'm Yvette. And I'm Cynthia, and this is episode 16. We're two Latinas from working class immigrant families navigating law school and bringing y'all raw, critical analysis of the law, current events, and personal politics. Why? Because we want to break down barriers set up by elite institutions and democratize knowledge. On this episode, for our current event, we'll be discussing the recent anti-protester legislation that the conservative lobbying group ALEC has been trying to promote. For deep thoughts, we'll discuss borders and whether or not they should exist. For our case, we'll be talking about Jennings versus Rodriguez, the recent Supreme Court case that found no statutory limit to how long the government can detain undocumented immigrants awaiting deportation. So, Yvette, how have you been? Mm, I've been good. I've just been juggling a lot of really important things like the job search and I've been... um, writing a brief for someone's deportation case that I've been working on in clinic. It's due to the court next Friday. Um, And just trying to stay on top of my mental health. And I just feel like I've been overwhelmed lately, but I finally got a job offer. Ah, so (laughs) exciting! Yeah, I'm excited. I'm really excited. I like, I'm pretty sure I want to take it. I'm just figuring out stuff like salary and benefits and like the move because it'd be in a different state i'm so excited for you that's that's such an exciting time in your life where it's like what's gonna be next and whatnot and it's just once you have the job offer there i feel like it's some sort of relief you know Mm -hmm. yeah it's been exciting to try and picture my life in the south um and i'm i'm just really over the bay area And I'm excited about being able to live in a place that isn't, you know, the haven for millionaires and really rich tech people. Yeah, I bet that must, that's going to be such a, uh, like a relief. (laughs) Mm -hmm. How have you been? Uh, Busy, um, definitely struggling with keeping everything balanced and staying on top of all the deadlines that I have. There's there's just like always a million things going on and it's so hard to operate on a basis where you're just getting the next thing done. Like, yeah. Where it's just like you're not getting ahead, you're not like on top of things, you're just like what's due right now that I have to do right now. Yeah. Um, but it's okay. Like I think, I don't know, I, I'm just going to keep working away until everything gets better. Um, and it's not like I don't take care of myself either. Like I do try to go to the gym and like cook for myself, go grocery shopping. So it's like, I'm not slaving away by any means, but it's just stressful. I don't think your basis for doing well should be whether or not you have time to do groceries. Like (laughs) (laughs) that's definitely a really important thing. It feels like a luxury. You need to feed yourself. No, it feels like a luxury to do things like grocery shopping. Yeah, I know what you mean. Actually, they came up in clinic today. Someone was like, I've been so busy that all I have in my kitchen is a can of tuna. So that's what I'm eating for lunch. And actually, yeah, last night I ate ramen noodles and tortilla chips because I hadn't gone to the grocery store. Yeah. But see, (laughs) I'm going tomorrow. Um, Studio headphones. (laughs) It's a great transition, I know. Um, So have you been using them in in clinic, your headphones? Yeah, I, I use them like basically every day. Also, I use them like when I'm walking like to and from my car and um, when I'm like 
I sit on my balcony sometimes at night. Oh my gosh, I've seen your balcony. That must be really nice. Yeah, it is. It's been cold lately, but overall it's really nice. And I just like put my headphones in and listen to my podcast. I've been using the ones I have, um, which are just like in ear when I go to the gym. And it's nice because the cord's actually longer. So I like connect it to my phone and I put the phone on the treadmill. And I always like with my other headphones, I used to be scared that I was going to like slow down by accident and like pull the like cord and like my phone go flying but i have less of that anxiety now when i'm on the treadmill because it's longer cord (laughs) that's good um so cynthia and i both like our studio headphones and if listeners are curious and want to try a pair of very nice (laughs) headphones then you can order some and if you do then you will be offered a discount at checkout if you write cerebronas which you should do yes (laughs) Okay, so for our current event, Yvette, um, what are we talking about? We are talking about this group called ALEC, which uh, stands for the American Legislative Exchange Council. And they're a conservative lobbyist group that has most recently been trying to push a ton of anti-protester legislation. And uh, we just wanted to thank the National Lawyers Guild for doing the analyses that allowed us to discuss this topic and that really kind of brought this to my attention recently. So to get more into what ALEC does, it's an organization that uses corporate contributions to sell prepackaged conservative bills like the Florida Stand Your Ground statute, which was the law issue that George Zimmerman used as his defense in his criminal case for killing Trayvon Martin. They're dedicated to advancing, quote unquote, the free market and limited government, but they want limited government to mean public-private partnerships between state legislatures and the legislatures and the corporate sector. And I think something that's just kind of interesting about ALEC is that um, as a backstory, uh, in 2012, around the time where more publicity was being drawn to Trayvon's case, that's when people began looking at the Stand Your Ground law in Florida, and they were like, what is this? And um, people realized that the exact same law had been passed in so many states in very in recent years, states like Ohio and North Carolina and Texas, and uh, that put more people on to ALEC and uh, allowed people to connect the dots between these different laws. Wow, ALEC sounds just like such a great like american <laughs> invention like oh my god this country really just produces the worst so your explanation of the introduction kind of got to this but why is this bad like let's just be very explicit about it so i think the public private partnerships thing is something that we should flag because it's part and parcel of neoliberalism which has been ballooning since the 1980s Neoliberalism demonstrates a shift away from New Deal era and civil rights era legislation that placed the state as the main purveyor of money for social welfare programs. And instead, under a neoliberal model, this responsibility is in the private sector. And this is just really bad because social welfare programs should not be done by a for-profit entity. It creates really sick incentives when you're trying to draw profit off of a program that's ostensibly supposed to help people live. Um, And I think the easiest of these can be seen in the context of private immigration detention centers. There's incentives to 
make the food as low quality as possible for that, you know, to cut costs. And for that reason, there's maggots in the food. Um, there's incentives. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in in Georgia and Alabama, the, det- uh, the detainees that I visited told me that there were maggots in the food and that it was like wasn't eatable. Well, yeah, there's, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I guess I didn't need to clarify that. <laughs> uh. Definitely. I mean, I feel like a few like steps before there's maggots in your food, it's still yeah. uneatable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, ugh. And I remember a guard that was there when I visited was like, he made a joke like, oh, we're serving lunch. Do you all want lunch? Uh. And we were like, oh, haha, sure. And he was like, I wouldn't eat the food here. And it's just, it's so sick, like, the fact that you're okay with these other human beings being treated this way, but you see yourself as better. Okay, can I, since we're sharing stories of, like, <laughs> things we've interacted with guards, I was in a state prison in North Carolina, and the guard was complaining how the men who lived on death row got to buy things like Doritos and, like, cup of noodles without paying taxes on them and without, like, the corporation hike-up fees. So they were able to, like, buy a bag of Doritos for, like, 70 cents, whereas he had to pay, like, $1.50 for the same bag, and he was just so upset about it. He was just like, wow, they get, like, the like the luxury they have of living on death row. And I was just like, are you... Do you understand they're in their cells, like, 24, like 23 hours a day? Like, it was just so sick. I'm they're sorry. awaiting death yeah how do you see yourself as disadvantaged in comparison to a person like that i know so okay great so back to alec though (laughs) yeah um and so you know none of these systems are perfect i think there are obviously issues with state dispense social welfare programs but i think most of us can agree that a profit incentive does not belong in a social welfare program um and so as just more background about alec um in 2012, there was a website that was called Alec Exposed, and it went viral showcasing more than 800 of these model bills that the organization had written. Um, and then the website supposedly was created by an anonymous whistleblower within Alec. And so apart from that that endeavor of Alec Exposed, Color of Change, which I feel like people are probably familiar with because of all of their email campaigns and petitions that are circulated frequently, they became involved and began tracking down corporations who fund Alec to ask them about their involvement. Yes, right? I love that. Mm-hmm. Public accountability. Yes. Um, and then in response, some corporations said that they defended their actions by saying that they wanted to make sure all viewpoints were being represented in public debates. Um, and in one of the articles that Cynthia and I read, um, someone from Color of Change said, but what is the other side to black people being able to vote this this is just such a it's such a straw man right like that argument like oh we just want everybody's voices to be heard it's like um but you're supporting legislation that's gonna make it harder for black people to vote like tell me again like let's start at square a again because i'm confused this is ridiculous um so what other type of legislation does alec promote so like we just mentioned any voter id related legislation alec is behind um, and to be clear, like people might not make the link between voter ID laws and whether or not the black community can vote, but statistics show that even though these voter ID laws seem like they're neutral on their face, no, yeah. like they're just, oh, like everybody has to show their ID, not just black people. So what's the issue? Um, but the, but people who are 
least likely to have state identification are people who are the most poor. And because of the racial wealth gap, then that disproportionately impacts the black community um, and other communities of color as well. Yeah, there's so many studies of people, like, if you don't agree with this, it's like literally you are shielding yourself <laughs> from, like, the information that's out there. Yeah, there's a lot of information about it. You can Google it, and we'll, we'll put links on our website, too, if, if people want to read more about it. Um, but they're also behind, like I mentioned earlier, the NRA Stand Your Ground laws and a lot of state efforts to opt out of regional greenhouse gas initiatives. So they're contributing to climate change, and I know people will remember all of the very recent huge catastrophic hurricanes and other storms that have been occurring. Um, So ALEC is truly behind a lot of the most serious problems that we currently have. You said there were some, like, the corporations that were funding it and, Mm -hmm. like, folks met with the corporations Color Color for Change. So who funds ALEC? Do we know? So the Koch brothers were some of the earliest funders. Of course. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. And... Pepsi, Coca-Cola, Kraft, and McDonald's were all funding Alec, and then once the once Alec became really public in 2012, they've since dropped out. Oh my God! Have you seen the Pepsi com- was it Pepsi or Coca-Cola commercials about like how we care about water? Yes, that's so sick. I'm yes, like, don't fall for it, people. Do not believe it. Coca-Cola is so sick. That Coca-Cola is like has bought owns bodies of water in india and is making it such that like people in india don't have access to drinking water because coca-cola owns it like it's just it's one and then the fact that they have this commercial yeah it's like we care okay sorry (laughs) talking about gaslighting um yeah (laughs) like i was mentioning earlier the trayvon martin case is what spurred attention onto alec and As such, they've had to respond to public allegations that they're corrupting the democratic system because, you know, supposedly one of the really great values of democracy is transparency and public debate. And Alec is doing everything behind the scenes. Their response to this is that this is just a free speech issue, that they're trying to get everybody's perspectives onto the table and that these perspectives of the free market um, and the importance of corporations at the center of social welfare programs is really important. And they say that these new critiques are coming from quote-unquote extreme liberal activists and that now more than ever their position is needed in order to make sure that all viewpoints are being heard because snowflakes are taking over our discourse. I just wanted to point out this is another example of gaslighting and manipulation and a good example of how the concept of free speech is weaponized by conservatives because the fact is that like the free market ideology is in many ways the basis of our capitalist economy. It's not a fringe position to have. And like I've said, neoliberalism has been ballooning since the 1980s. So to say that the positions that they're espousing are on the fringe or marginalized is <laughs> so absurd when considering who has them. It's like you're acting like you're defending the little man who, who can't speak up and you're elevating his voice. But that's not new, right? I feel like conservative or like, like white males on campus feel like they're like the minority and like they can't speak because they'll be like I don't know like students will react to what they say aggressively and I'm just like you're not the minority like please understand like you're not the minority I just get confused by that like I get confused by the sincerity of the argument that people feel stifled because I feel like I feel so many things when I'm volunteering a thought in class like 
feeling pressure that I'm representing the whole Latinx race because I'm one of the only Latina women in the class and like, you know, self-conscious because people will think that I'm the affirmative action student and (laughs) all of, and so, but I still say my opinion and say it loudly and stand by it because I believe in my views. So I'm just confused about how someone who has so much privilege really feels scared when like I say something. Well, I mean, I guess I shouldn't be that surprised by that. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're not used to you speaking, right? Yeah. You're supposed to just be there, listen, bring them their food, like clean their house. That's it. Mm, it's gross. You're not supposed to be anywhere else. Um, so you mentioned that NLG has been doing a lot of this work. So what, ha- like, what have they looked at? What have they found? Okay. So the NLG did kind of a numerical look at how many bills Alec has been trying to pass last year versus this year. And last year, Alec proposed 25 bills in 19 states, and all of them were about limiting the right to protest, which I will say is very ironic considering their quote-unquote free speech stance, because the right to protest is included in the right to free speech. And now there are actually 58 proposed bills in 31 states. That's double that of last year, and it's no doubt because of Trump. Eight bills have already passed in North Carolina, North Dakota, South Dakota, Oklahoma, and Tennessee. And so this is something I think is really, really important to point out. The companies that have supported these bills include Energy Transfer Partners, which is the organization that's behind the Dakota Access Pipeline. And specific examples of the types of things that they're trying, that they've tried to pass are removing liability for drivers who run over, injure, or kill protesters. How is that, like, good legislation? Like, who are the fucking congressmen and assembly members that are carrying this legislation like removing liability like no these people should be able to should have a liability because they should be held accountable if you fucking run over someone at a protest like this is that's so sick yeah yeah and i'm sure people won't need me to draw this connection but it's that's similar to the incident that happened in charlottesville where um, white supremacists ran over uh, one of the protesters who was there protesting the rise of white supremacy. Uh, They've also tried to pass legislation challenging the right to picket, really just like coming at the core of free speech principles, of what free speech is supposed to protect. Um, And they're trying to drastically redefine the meaning of the word riot to include a whole range of activities that wouldn't have been included before. And luckily, none of those have passed. But what's scary is that they're learning from their mistakes and making them better, right? Like we both just scoffed at how absurd it is that they're tried to pass the bill about removing liability for drivers who run over protesters, but they're making their legislation more subtle than that. And I think that that's even scarier. So in January of 2008, they formalized a new model policy that has been introduced at its annual meeting. And it draws on two already successfully passed Oklahoma bills that criminally penalize anyone trespassing on quote unquote critical infrastructure and prescribe criminal penalties and financial liability for any organizations who quote-unquote conspire to assist protesters. And I think this is like another good example of the what we're the what we're talking about the voter ID laws how like this might seem like it's neutral on its face like oh you can't trespass on critical infrastructure like what does that mean seems like that's something that could be evenly applied to everybody. But this is actually just a thinly veiled attempt to stop protesters from interfering with fossil fuel extraction infrastructure, including oil pipelines, petroleum refineries, um, things of that nature. And a week after this model policy was introduced, 
legislators in Ohio and Iowa had introduced similar bills. Wait, what's going on in Ohio and Iowa? Both states are actually, so this is why I was mentioning earlier that Energy Transfer Partners is a company whose involvement we should flag because both of those states are home to the to major pipeline products that uh. are owned by this company. And again, this is the company that owns the Dakota Access Pipeline. This is also sick. I know. <laughs> so, okay, so the bills that you mentioned, what is, what's new about them? A key component is the attempt to redefine and expand the meaning of terms like terrorism, sabotage, and trespass. Like I said, to allow prosecutors to punish people for a broader range of activities. And uh, the most recent round of bills have introduced a new felony. It's called critical infrastructure sabotage. Um, They aim to penalize organizations that support protesters by holding them, quote unquote, vicariously liable for damages undertaken by individuals. And this is scary because, like, I, I don't know, there's probably a lot of organizations that in some way, like, could be, you could argue that they support protesters. Yeah. You know, and I, I... I also, I just think that what the outcome of that would be, would be really negative. Like people would want to distance themselves from yeah. protest. You know who I would like to hold vicariously liable for the things they fund? Corporations. Mm. That, like, but of course, no, no, that's their free speech. Right. Ugh. Um, is there like a general narrative that's been introduced and like part of all these laws being introduced? Yeah, so they're based on the myth of the paid protester, which I think we've heard a lot from Trump, um, and this conspiracy theory about how George Soros is paying protesters to show up at events, and um, (laughs) really funny. Uh, All of this is just, like, you already pointed out how ironic it is what they're doing Mm -hmm. based on what they claim are their values, but... All of this is also reminding me of a conversation you and I, well, you and I and a group of other students had like not that long ago Mm -hmm. about like we're like the fight's not even like the fight. We're fighting for power. We're fighting for like more access to resources and they already have them. Yeah. Right. So it's like they're able to fund all this legislation because they have the people in power. Right. Like it's it's legislators who mostly agree with them. So it's just even though this makes us sound i feel like conspiracy theorists like it's all well documented we have to get informed about it because they're winning like that's the honest truth sadly like as much as we like to think that the arc bends towards justice like that's not the case we're not winning this fight right now we're losing like we're work like we're going backwards at a very high speed and so we just have to keep remembering the fact that we're not fighting from equal positions mm-hmm. we're yeah. not Great. Well, I think we should end the conversation there. All right, let's talk about open borders because I'm super excited to talk about this because I feel yeah, like me too. I mention it a lot to, to people and people are just like, oh, I've never thought about this. Like, what do you mean open borders? Like, they're just so like... It, it's it's a great idea, but I feel like not enough people give it enough thought. Yeah, even though borders are actually a new invention. Yeah. What do you... So I think we should clarify what we mean when we say open borders and abolishing borders. So when I think about it, I think of, of it as like allowing free entry and exit from every country, 
But each country would still know, like, where it, like, ends and where another country begins. So, like, redrawing national borders, for me, I think of that as, like, a different project. Yeah. So, um, but I don't, when I think about free entry, free exit, and open borders, I don't think about, I don't mean getting rid of, like, inspections at the border. Not because, like, of drugs, but I think, like, there's actual threats of, like, you know, carrying a pest with you into a country where, like... You know, you might could really affect the agriculture um, or, or bugs or th- things like that. And I would allow for a few but very few reasons to deny someone entry. So, like, if they have weapons on them or if there's someone who's, like, committed, like, mass war crimes, like, mass acts of a genocide or things like that, that would be easy to know. And I think if we improved our ability to, like, identify someone who has actually been a part of terrorist organizations, like, then maybe I would allow for that, except that also as a reason to not let someone in. But it's unlikely that we would ever get to a place where I'd be comfortable allowing that because of how racist we are when categorizing terrorism. Mm -hmm. Like, we don't categorize, like, violent white supremacists as terrorists. Mm -hmm. So I, but, like, if that could change, like, then I could see grounds for that as well. But, like, there's, but it would be very few reasons. Like, I know the UK, when you're trying to get in, they ask you, like, sometimes they ask you, depending on who you are, like, to see how much money you have in your bank account because they don't want to let you in if they think you don't have enough money to support yourself. So, like, things like that, like, that would definitely not be okay by me. Yeah. There's another, there's a category of immigration within the US that's literally like, it's like a special exception if you have a certain amount of money then you can apply to this lottery-based system to get in. It's not based on merit. Um, So I agree on thinking about this as about free entry and exit from every country. I think that for me, what, what this evokes is making the right to travel, which is something that has been recognized in multiple international treaties, a reality. And I agree that redrawing borders is a distinct project, but I think it's a related one ultimately because... I think that the way that borders were have been drawn has been mm-hmm. violent. Yeah. It's separated communities and it's created divisions now that didn't exist prior. And allowing free travel would mean that this would no longer occur. Like a family in Texas would no longer be barred from seeing their family a few miles away in Mexico because of lack of documentation yeah. on either side. Um, and I'll also say, like I mentioned earlier, uh, that the concept of a militarized border is a very new one, even though, like you said, it feels so natural today. Like people are shocked that we're even proposing this. Um, But I think it's interesting and important to note that the first wall, quote unquote, but well, it was a wall, but (laughs) I just, I think it's okay. That's a loaded term because of Trump, but between Mexico and the U S was built to keep Chinese people out in 1882 was when the Chinese Exclusion Act was passed, and that was actually the first federal immigration legislation that was passed in the U.S. And it was just, it was literally, Excluding let's exclude Chinese, Chinese people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, That's, That was aptly named <laughs> Chinese yeah. Exclusion. That's exactly what they were doing. It was very straightforward. So as such, Chinese people tried to gain entry in the U.S. through Mexico. And in the early 1900s, there were only a few dozen border guards. This was kind of like the first incarnation of the border patrol. 
And so once those things started happening, the wall and the border guards, that's when underground smuggling rings began um, and really created like this whole underground economy. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really important to point out because that is also the case today. And I think it's not a coincidence because something people don't realize is like the type of things, the horrors and tragedies that people are fleeing, mm-hmm. they'll risk death yeah. to try and get here. And so what occurs when you militarize your border is that just an illicit economy is created of people of people who smuggle people in illegally. And when that isn't regulated, terrible things happen. Like yeah. I meant I'm like I think we can talk about this a bit more later, but most of women who most of the women who cross the border are raped. Yeah. Because they're being smuggled in by people who are already committing crimes and have no incentive to follow the law. Yeah, and there's no protections available. Right. Um, And just to point out, like, how much this idea is ingrained in our head, I wanted to point out that in the movie Coco, which is a fictionalized idea of what traveling to the other side of death would look like, they imagined a border. Mm -hmm. They imagined a checkpoint that people would go through where there would be, like, official designated agents that would decide whether or not you could go or leave. Um, And I think that that shows how ingrained this idea is, but we need to fight back against that. And also I'm sure there's so many people who watch that and didn't register that as weird. Yeah. But I think we should get in the habit of questioning how natural borders really are. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Why do you think that it's important for immigration to be respected and allowed? Why is this something that we should be fighting for? A ton of reasons, but first, actually, before I forget, I like when we were talking about Chinese exclusion and how it was like the first immigration legislation. Like, I know we're going to talk about an immigration-based law later, but I just like I think it's so important to remember like how it started because it's like the foundations are so rotten. Yeah. Like, well, we can talk about this more later, but like, how can we keep going on this history that started with Chinese exclusion? Anyways, it's Um, racist. Yeah. Why were there no laws prior when all people who were immigrating were European? I know. Why are we building on this foundation? It makes no sense to me. But immigration is great, and we should not be passing legislation to exclude people. Um, I was reading this article, and we'll include it on the website, but I like that they said that immigration is the greatest anti-poverty program ever devised. Because, and so, okay, so this is what how they, like, back it up. They say, if the developed world were to take in enough immigrants to enlarge its labor force by a mere 1%, it is estimated that the additional economic value created would be worth more to the migrants than all of the world's official foreign aid combined. And so, like, because when immigrants um, immigrate, they're able to, like, double or triple and sometimes even more, like, increase even more their wages when they just by migrating and so Mm -hmm. that's a significant change for the like the individual and their family so like all the world aid that we're giving like literally the value would be more if we just like increase the workforce by one percent which is it's just so marginal when you actually think about it like that Mm -hmm. and it's just it re like it re-emphasizes that migration is necessary for equality so that people who are born in less wealthy countries like have access to the same opportunities as people born in wealthier country like there's nothing about being born in one country versus another that should make someone like more worthy or deserving of opportunity so migration is like a way to equalize that yeah I think that 
I'm going to just double down on this point because it's really important. The I think the arbitrary aspect of where you're born shouldn't dictate the possibilities that you have in your life. You know, like you and I have been afforded privileges because of the fact that our parents moved here. Yeah. Um, and we were born in the United States as a result. And I don't think of myself as distinct from people who are born in El Salvador. I really think like we are the same. The fact that they were born there and I was born here doesn't create any qualitative difference or significant difference in terms of the dignity that we both deserve. Yeah. And as such, I just think people should be able to travel and pursue the life that they want to live, you know? And like, um, I, to go back to my point about the illegal economy, um, what ended up happening in, after the Chinese exclusion act was passed, um, is that thing like border inspectors were paid off. Like I said, smuggling rings were created. There was a whole illegal economy that was created. And those are the things that happen when you militarize your border. Like there's this false idea that if you build a wall, people will stay out. But that's just not the reality on the ground. Um, The push and pull factors are so much stronger than like a wall. Like the things that are pushing someone out of the country, like are always just going to be more than the things pulling someone to a country because migration is so hard. So yeah, you're totally right. Yeah, I think that. People in the U.S. might find that difficult to believe because of how comfortable their lives are. Yeah. But, like, it's the things that people are fleeing, like, a number of people, the people who decide to cross the border feel like the possibility of being in the U.S. as compared to their life in their home country is worth the risk of death. Yeah. Um, And I just think also it's really cruel to enact imperialist policies that fuck up other countries and then expect people to die without a fight without trying to find alternatives for themselves yeah and then i think also i'm gonna try and find articles that point to this but one thing that people don't realize is that immigration numbers like what something i are saying is backed by numbers the one thing like immigration numbers stay constant regardless of whatever border policies are employed the number of people so like trump has said oh the number of people who are crossing the border have decreased because of our security policies. The number of people who, who are presenting themselves at the border has decreased. That doesn't mean that the people who are attempting to cross necessarily has decreased. Um, and like I said, there's people who have tracked um, the number of people who cross the border. And by and large, people say that like, yes, there's like, you know, increases and decreases, but it's not significant and it doesn't track onto any specific policy. So... We've talked about why borders are bad, but what would we gain by abolishing them? Would we get anything from this? So much. So I think going back to what something you mentioned earlier, like I think it's getting rid of borders would be a form of reparations that we owe like all indigenous communities that were violently separated by borders. Like you said, they by like where they were drawn and how like they were not at all based on the existing communities. And so it's, and this is not just limited to the American continent. Like colonizers went all over the world and they imposed their notions of borders. And it doesn't make sense why we should privilege their notions of borders over others. And like, we just shouldn't, right? Like these communities existed with their notions of borders, which was free borders. And now the West got to decide that we're going to have closed borders. Like, why should that be where we end up or what we continue to abide by? Like maps, geography, like current national borders, they're all the result of Western imperialism. So we should get to challenge them and decide whether that's the world we want to keep living in. And 
Also, like, getting rid of borders, like, we would finally, like, we've talked about this a lot, like, the Mm -hmm. legal fiction that exists in the law, Mm -hmm. and so getting rid of borders would get rid of the legal fiction between, like, asylum, refugees, and immigrants, Mm -hmm. because, like, the difference between someone fleeing because of, like, a war is not that different from someone fleeing because of poverty. Right. Um, And then, like, I'm thinking also, like, what would be, like, the second step of of things we would gain, like a, a degree removed. Mm-hmm. There's so many areas of the law that would be impacted by this. Like, for example, I was just reading recently um, about the case where um, a U.S. Border Patrol agent shot across the border and mm-hmm. killed a Mexican citizen. Mm-hmm. And there was, like, nothing that could basically be done um, because Mexico couldn't prosecute him because the U.S. wouldn't extradite him. Mm. And most of the litigation in the United States was whether, like, the Mexican citizen... Like, the the people who survived him could, like, bring this case against a U.S. national. And so... It's a good question of whether or not the court has, quote-unquote, jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. Which, do you want to explain what that is? To not really. <laughs> it's, it's a complex, and I feel like we should get into it in, a ca- in the case. Like, we should just do the case later. Yeah. Basically, like, the general idea of jurisdiction is whether or not the court has authority to decide something. And they felt like the court, the U.S. federal or sorry the u.s court system didn't have the authority to decide on whether but, or not because the holding in that case was confusing because they remanded it they didn't just vacate it so there were further things happening and i don't know what happened after it was remanded which is why i'm just like i don't know how it ended up so we should look into it more what about you what do you think we would gain by abolishing borders um i think it's simple i think we would gain a piece of our humanity back um i People die crossing the border. Like, people walk miles and miles and die of dehydration. Women are raped. 80% of Central American women and girls crossing the border are raped. It is disgusting that this concept, it's because it's a concept of a border, has created such violence for women for mostly women of color. Yeah. You know, talking about human dignity, like, it's not just, like, the dignity of the immigrants, but it's, like, also, like, the dignity of the people who work Border Patrol because, like, they, like, they become, like, such callous humans. Like, there's so many stories about how Border Patrol will knock over water that's left in the desert so that migrants won't die of, of, like, dehydration. Yes, fuck Border Patrol. And they, like, you know, and so it's, like, that, they lost their humanity in doing that, too, you know? So it's, like, this liberation is liberation for all of us. Like, like, they would not be placed in the positions to be such assholes, which, like, in the end is also good for their souls. Not that I'm saying, like, they should be what like we're thinking about but like there's in there's benefits to them too you know they can like hopefully sleep better at night and like not carry such karma and create such uh, just i don't yeah the i forget what the exact numbers are but actually the vast majority of border patrol agents are latinx and i just want to say that every single latinx person that's a border patrol agent should be ashamed of themselves yeah they should So this is an argument that somebody might bring up against our position. What should we say to somebody who says that a country has a right to control who enters their own country? Well, I feel like that when people are arguing like that, it's because they're worried about like, oh, uh, like a country should be able to protect its citizens from like floods of immigrants coming in. Like that's what I think people are thinking behind that. And I think they're really concerned like about economic fears, right? Like, 
loss of job opportunities or bringing down wages or like increased use of social services. But first off, like how dare we think about like a worry about that or anything like that without talking about or doing something about economic inequality because it's like we have no right as a country or as people who have and like consume way more than the rest of the world to worry like to worry about sharing our resources or worry about others having our resources so it's it's like anytime someone brings that up it's like tell me what you're doing about economic inequality until then like i have no interest in like engaging in this question um, yeah. Tell me what you're doing about climate change that like we use up, we emit so much carbon that all affects the global south. Exactly. Um, but also, it's like, also, there are studies on the impact of immigrants to a country, and those have never been consistent or thorough. Like for every study, someone says like immigrants like hurt the economy. There's another study that says immigrants help the economy. So like, it's not like, like, the jury has come back on this and it's like solid fact like it's not it's not mm-hmm. it's not something we understand yet and also it's like it's unfair to blame immigrants for lower wages instead of blaming the corporations yep. who are paying those lower wages because yep. they're being immoral like we excuse them for paying lower wages as like oh they're only doing what's reasonable for like their bottom line and like the financial incentives but that's not a legitimate excuse when considering the importance of paying living wages Mm-hmm. also like this other thing that i came across when i was like trying to understand what others like what folks argue against this like there's folks who are concerned about like what immigration will do to like an, a national identity and so like because <laughs> i know right but like okay so the, the argument is that strong national identities result in individuals being more willing to pay like higher taxes and like more social welfare programs because like the country's more cohesive as a community um, so, for example, Scandinavian countries are off, like which are very homogeneous societies. They're considered to have the best social support programs. But I think, like instead of focusing on how to cultivate or protect strong national identities, we should instead be focusing on how to change our ethics and morals to feel responsibility and care for people who aren't like us. Like instead of trying to think, like, okay, how can we make this person seem more like us so we'll care about them more? It's like instead we should just be like. How can I change myself to care about people who aren't like me? Like, that seems like the much better use of your energy. So I'm like, I'm much less interested in spending time on convincing people that I'm enough like them for them to care about me. So, yeah, I think that's the whole... God. Okay, I'm not going to... This is going to be a whole tangent that I'm not going to go into. But just quickly, I'll say that this issue of national identity is really funny to me because even... No, okay, I'll I'll talk about this later in the recommendation section. I'm gonna recommend a book that people can read and if they want to think about that more. But um, my thing about whether or not a country can control who enters their space is that, like, that is a fiction. Like, this is a really uncomfortable reality for people to sit with. But even though the state does have a monopoly on violence and they can employ things like the border patrol, people's bodies are their own. And they're going to move them and people will do whatever it takes to get a better life. Um, Border crossings have remained constant for decades. And before the 1880s, there were no federal limitations on immigration to the U.S. So, right, these are just all very new concepts that we're talking about. And I just think that if we survived then, we can, without borders, we can survive now without borders. I agree with you. I think it's so important to highlight how modern this all is. Mm -hmm. And I think you wanted to point out 
um, wrapping up, how would abolishing borders actually work in practice? Yeah, so I think just so that folks can better imagine it, I guess, and be less concerned about this notion. So I see it as like everyone would be allowed like in who presented themselves at a border and they passed inspection. They'd be authorized to work, which would free up all the resources that currently go towards checking whether someone is authorized to work, which is a lot of them. Like yeah. if you think about the whole system that's in place, mm-hmm. like E-Verify, the like, what is that form you have to fill out every time you get employment? Anyway, the I-9. Mm-hmm. The I-9, that's what um, it is. And the people so that who were admitted and were working would also pay taxes as they currently do. Um, and I'd hope that either like governments or nonprofits would invest in like transitional housing for arriving immigrants while they can get jobs and private housing. Because this is already what like family members do for other family members. So I would just want to see like the government help expand that. And so everyone who arrived would have access like to education and health services, but like I'd be willing to accept like a phase in or like tiered levels of like citizenship. So like to get like building up to full citizenship. So for example, like if a country wanted to say like you can only vote or contribute like slash withdraw from social security after you've been here for like three to five years, for example, like I could see like tiers of political rights being given, not after like absurdly amount of years though. But yeah, so I think I think it's totally doable and we like we just need to get get going and move towards this i just want to say i think it's funny like i feel like when we get into some of these hypotheticals you demonstrate well i don't i'm just imposing this on you i don't know if you agree but i feel like you're such a policy person because whenever we have these hypotheticals you're always like very nitty-gritty like how is this system actually going to be deployed (laughs) i think this is an example of that (laughs) well uh guilty as charged (laughs) Now, we're going to talk about Jennings versus Rodriguez, which was a decision that was just rendered this past week. Do you want to go into the facts? Yeah, I think uh, just quickly, you know, the named plaintiff, because it's a class action, so it's representing a whole class, but Mm -hmm. the named plaintiff is Alejandro Rodriguez. I always try to say it in English, but I'm like, why? That's wrong. Like, I know how to say this right. Oh my god, I didn't even think about that. Okay, so the name, (laughs) let me do this over. The name plaintiff is Alejandro Rodriguez, who's a Mexican citizen and a legal permanent resident. So, legal permanent resident, not undocumented, legal permanent resident, who was detained for removal after a criminal conviction in 2004. Um, If you're a legal permanent resident, like, I encourage all of y'all to apply for citizenship yes. if you can do it like yes. please please reach out if you need help or, or can, don't know how to do it please okay so in 2007 so this was three years later while he was still appealing he filed a habeas petition in order to get a bond hearing to determine whether it was necessary for him to remain in detention while he was like still appealing and we can get into habeas some other day <laughs> <laughs> um and then just to clarify like what a named plaintiff is so a class action is like a is litigation that's brought on behalf of a whole group of people. Like the mm-hmm. lawyers define the class of they say, okay, this includes everybody who is a legal permanent resident who's been convicted of a crime and is now facing deportation proceedings. And then the named plaintiff is just the person who they select to represent the whole class. Mm-hmm. Just in case people didn't know that. Do you want to get into what the issues were in the case? Because there were several. Yeah. 
So one issue was whether or not non-citizens who are subject to mandatory detention under the relevant part of the Immigration Nationality Act are entitled to bond hearings with the possibility of release if their detention lasts for six months or longer. The other issue was whether or not the non-citizens are entitled to release unless the government proves by clear and convincing evidence that the non-citizens are dangers to their communities or and also flight risks. And then also whether or not the length of the non-citizens' detention should be weighed in favor of release and whether or not new bond hearings should be provided automatically every six months. And the reasons like why these were the main issues was because of the what the Ninth Circuit held, mm-hmm. which is again like the circuit that covers like California and is and seen in Arizona and like other places. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's seen as like the one of the more liberal circuits. Mm-hmm. Not consistently, but <laughs> has that reputation, right? Like mm-hmm. Trump is constantly attacking the Ninth Circuit. Mm-hmm. So the Ninth Circuit before this case, they held that the statutes implicitly require a six-month limitation on detention because, um, and that after six months, the government can continue deten- detention only after giving a bond hearing and proving by clear and convincing evidence, which is a legal standard, that further detention is justified. So it placed the burden on the government mm-hmm. to prove they needed to continue detaining the person. Really important. Yeah. So what did the supreme court hold before i get into the holding i just want to give a little shout out to our very own immigrants rights clinic director who was uh one of the people involved in litigating that ninth circuit decision she's amazing i love her amazing okay so the supreme court held um that the relevant sections of the immigration nationality act which are in case anyone's really trying to vigorously take notes, <laughs> sections 1225B, 1226A, and 1226C of Title VIII of the U.S. Code. Those sections do not give detained... Uh... I mean, <laughs> so the Supreme Court uses this language. Sorry, yeah. It's like I hesitated because this is like literally what the holding is, but I hate saying this word. So uh, they held that they do not give detained aliens the right to periodic bond hearings during the course of their detention. They said that the Ninth Circuit misapplied the canon of constitutional avoidance in holding otherwise. Um, And then just to like clarify, 1225B is a law that allows the detention of undocumented immigrants trying to enter the U.S. without further hearing or review. 1226A allows the detention of undocumented immigrants already in the country while the decision to remove them is pending. And then 1226C allows detention of undocumented immigrants already in the country with criminal convictions. Cynthia, can you tell us what constitutional avoidance is and why the Supreme Court said that the Ninth Circuit had incorrectly abided by this doctrine? Yeah, so it's a principle that guides how a court should interpret laws and statutes passed by Congress. So when an act of Congress raises like a serious doubt as to whether it's constitutional, the court has to decide whether there's a way to interpret the statute so that it avoids the constitutional concerns. So basically, the court will interpret a law passed by Congress in a way that prevents them having to hold that the law is unconstitutional. And so Alito's reasoning for why the Ninth Circuit misapplied it 
is that he says constitutional avoidance only comes into play when the statute can be plausibly understood in more than one way. And he says that the Ninth Circuit interpretation of the statute is not at all plausible because there is nothing in the statutes imposing a time limit on detention and it says nothing about bond hearings. Um, But before we get into more of Alito's reasonings, I think it's important to go over a precedent Mm -hmm. that's playing a big role in the case. Mm -hmm. So, Servitas v. Davis, which is a case from 2001. And so the general statute allowed for detention for 90 days of immigrants who were ordered removed, but there was a special statute that allowed for the additional detention beyond the 90 days of undocumented immigrants who had certain criminal convictions or were considered a risk to the community or unlikely to comply with the order of removal. And so the issue in Cidavitis was whether the post-removal period statute authorized the attorney general to detain a removable undocumented immigrant indefinitely beyond the removal period or for only a period reasonably necessary. And so... Like, Just quickly, in yeah. case people are confused about why somebody could would still be detained after they had been ordered deported. Also, every time we say removed, we're saying deported. It's like, for some reason, the law calls it removed to make it sound less bad than it is. Um, that would be if a person had been ordered deported, but their home country didn't refuse to accept them. If there's certain, uh, there's some countries that we just like, at some at a certain time, Cambodia, we were just, was just like not in agreement with the U.S. and refused to take anybody back who was a citizen of theirs. And also, um, some countries have regulations about what documents need to be released to the U.S. in order for the person to be deported back. And uh, like India is really bad about this. Some countries will just take years and years and years. And so people, even though they've been ordered deported, they their home country won't receive them and so there's there's also like other issues right where somebody might still be like litigating the order of removal if someone's appealing then well but after a certain point you can no longer appeal your deportation no yeah there's only so many but that process if like the if the attorney asks for a stay of like the actual removal while Mm -hmm. the litigation's ongoing so that means they're also being held Mm mm-hmm Okay, so in Servitas, the court, using constitutional avoidance, held that indefinite detention of undocumented immigrants would raise serious constitutional concerns. So the statute has like an implicit limitation to reasonable time, Mm -hmm. which the court gave, like defined reasonable time as six months. So it was, um, but it was clear that it did not mean that an undocumented immigrant not removed must be released after six months. They just have to like be reassessed. So, like, this Ninth Circuit used Servitas in determining, like, okay, like, indefinite detention creates serious constitutional concerns. But the but Alito in the Supreme Court said that there's a difference between those statutes and those in Servitas because these statutes have a specified period of time, like, in the language. So, he reads quote, immigration officers finished considering the asylum application or until removal proceedings have concluded. And so he finds that language to be a specified like time limit. And in Servitas, the language used may. And in this, in these statutes, the language says shall be detained, which is just like, it's like he wants to read them this way, right? Because it's like, this doesn't give an actual time limit. This 
Like, this doesn't give any sort of limit. It's just kind of like a procedural stage. So yeah, and he also found that the statutes in this, in, in question in Rodriguez, were like, they said that an immigrant can only be released only if certain conditions are met. So he said, like, the statute imposes a prohibition on releasing them under any other conditions. But Breyer dissented. So this is not the only way of reading the statute. Yvette, do you want to tell us more about Breyer's dissent? Yeah. Um, so he found that the reading of the statute, according to the majority, is making, it's actually makes the statute unconstitutional. Um, so they differ on that question of constitutional avoidance. Because he found that the previous cases treat bail hearings in prolonged detention as necessary. Um, he also thought that a class action was appropriate. Um, and he felt really strongly about these things. He read portions of a dissenting opinion from the bench. And so that doesn't always happen. Um, but that is something that justices occasionally do when they feel particularly impassioned by an issue. And so what I appreciated about the dissent was that the first few pages of it is dedicated to noting how long people have been detained. Some asylum seekers have been held in detention for two and a half years. What's wild about this is also is also that two thirds of these detained asylum seekers eventually are granted relief. So that means that, you know, because I'm sure there's people who are thinking, oh, well, why wouldn't we detain people who have frivolous claims. I think it's something that Donald Trump espouses. It's like, we shouldn't let these people run around the country because they have frivolous claims that they're making up, that Mm -hmm. they're trying to trick us with. But two-thirds of detained asylum seekers are eventually granted relief. And I also want to point out that if you're an asylum seeker, you're escaping horror and trauma that a lot of people probably can't even conceptualize. And then on top of that, they're held in a cage for two and a half years. Um, in one case, a person was held for four years after his criminal conviction had been entered into. This should obviously be a violation of the criminal concept of double jeopardy, which is the idea that you shouldn't be punished twice for the same crime. A person served their time, and then after that, they were held in immigration detention for four years. How is that not extra punishment for the same thing? He pointed out how arbitrary it is, even from a due process perspective, that detained asylum seekers would have received a bond hearing had they been detained in the interior instead of at the border. And I appreciate how he did frame it in such a common sense way. Like he pointed out that, yes, these people do not have legal status, but they believe they have a claim to stay in the US. And so the question then becomes, does the Immigration and Nationality Act entitle an individual member of one of these classes to obtain say, after six months of detention, a bail hearing to decide whether or not they pose a risk of flight or a danger to the community, and if they don't, then release them on bail. And the bail's really high. It's like, what, like 1500 or something? It's the minimum, yeah. Yeah, so it's like, it's not like, they're like, oh yeah, give me $20 and you can go free. Like, that's not, it's really still hard to meet bail. Yeah, I mean, I think people should be released like for free, but... Yeah. No, but that's what I'm saying. Like, people might people might think, like, oh, if you grant them a bail hearing, it's like, no, that's not the end of the road. There's additional barriers, like, being able yeah. to afford the bail. Yeah, I think that we've gotten to a place where what we're fighting for is, like, below the bare minimum. Because we're not even arguing that... Because I, I don't think immigration detention centers should exist at all. Right? I don't think people should be detained at all. And, like, what we're arguing is... It's not even... Can the government continue detaining people? It's like, 
Is the government obligated to give someone the opportunity to be heard before a neutral arbiter to make a case for why they should be released? It's not, it's not requiring the government to release a person after six months. Yeah. It's requiring them to have a hearing, to have the government prove why it's worth expending money to detain this person. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, wait. Okay. I thought this was really absurd. Like, talking about how I was really uncomfortable with saying alien to refer to undocumented person. So, uh, in, one, at one por- in one portion of the dissent, Breyer wrote, an alien is a quote-unquote person. And he quote, he cited that sentence. Yeah. I just, I like, I think that that's something that law students and lawyers, like, might be like, oh, well, that's just like how you make legal arguments. Like, you say something, but then you have to write, put case law to back it up. But <sighs> I, right? And so it's like, okay, like, the whole idea is like, don't ever make a claim without being able to back, you know, the best claims are the ones that are backed up by case law and by yeah. cases that have come before it. And I think it is so wild that he felt, and I get why he did, but I think it's so wild that he felt the need to cite to a case for the assertion that an alien is a person yeah like what does that say i think we should all reflect on that yeah um one thing to note just quickly is that this was a plurality opinion and that kagan recused herself so it means like she wasn't she didn't sit for this case um it's because she was solicitor general yeah um so a lot of people are thinking about cases that they could bring that would mean kagan didn't have to not be a part of it so that's that's important and so that just kind of brings me to like what's next so because the supreme court ended up remanding the case to back to the ninth circuit and the ninth circuit actually gets to answer like the major constitutional question about whether indefinite detention of non-citizens without a bond hearing as authorized by the immigration statute is constitutional so like can you indefinitely hold a non-citizen like is that constitutional but Alito made it in a way where they're not answering the question without first deciding whether this case can continue as a class action lawsuit, which includes like several questions. So like, does the court have jurisdiction to hear this class action, whether class action is appropriate based on the available relief or then and like on the necessary fact specific analysis of due process. And so if the court finds that class action is not appropriate, they don't need to answer the constitutional question. So what what's next is very, very tricky. And so the reason why now the question is the constitutionality of the issue, um, in because I feel like this is something that's very natural to think of as a law student, but people, in case it hasn't become clear already, it's because this was decided as an interpretation of the immigration nationality statute not as an interpretation of a constitutional principle yeah so like to summarize um the ninth circuit found that the statute did not allow for indefinite detention without a bond hearing and without relying on the constitution yeah so it was just like this statute based on like what it says like the history of it yeah what congress was trying to intend yeah there's no way Congress meant for this statute to allow for the indefinite detention. So this statute does not allow for the indefinite detention. And that's where Alito came in and was just like, no, this statute does allow for indefinite detention without a bond hearing. And so the case has to go back to decide whether that statute is now constitutional or not. 
And in case people are wondering why that's what the order is, first you decide based on the statute and then you decide based on the constitution is that there's a principle in our law of being conservative, like little c conservative as in um, being cautious. So you're supposed to make judicial decisions in the narrowest way possible. So the idea is like with each decision, you're not creating new laws or new interpretations of very important principles like the constitution. It's like when you get an issue, you need to resolve it in the most narrow way possible. Yeah. If that makes sense. No, yeah. And that's why on remand, the Ninth Circuit has to answer the class action first mm-hmm. because if they don't have jurisdiction to hear a class action lawsuit, then they should not answer whether indefinite detention without a bond hearing is unconstitutional. Which would be the bigger question. Yes. Um, and I also just want to quickly mention why it's important for this to be a class class action, like class lawsuit. And so Alito argued in his opening that the vast majority of removal determinations are quickly made, which is trying to make it seem like, like long detention periods like only happen once in a while. And like he has facts in this very case because it's of class action that show that like this is literally the language in the Ninth Circuit's case. So he read this. He has this is very clearly facts that he has before him that class members spend on average 404 days in immigration detention and nearly half are detained for more than one year one in five for more than 18 months and one in 10 for more than two years and one class member had been detained for 1585 days and so it's wild that even with these facts in front of him he's arguing that determinations are quickly made and so like in the future without the lawsuit being a class action lawyers won't have access to the information and be able to bring a, bring to light all of the time immigrants spend in detention and so and also like the other big concern is without it being a class action individual cases can become moot meaning they don't need to continue um and like the question is no longer before the court once the individual is deported so there's like it's important for it to be a class action and the fact that he brought this question before the court even though it was no like it was not before the court he didn't have to question this at all he brought it before the court on purpose like this wasn't an accident it's a bad man okay cynthia do you want to give your recommendation for the week yeah, so my I'm recommending the Calm app, and it's better than the Headspace app, which I think I had recommended before. Um, and I think it's better because you can do more with its free version. And so there's so many different meditation practices that are like specific. So there's one like for stress. There's one for like using your phone less. There's another one for like getting ready to go to sleep, for focusing. Mm. And it also has like bedtime stories that you can kind of fall asleep to. And mm. I've been falling asleep to them, and it's been nice. Um, and it also has like a whole nother part of the app where it just has music that you can play for specific moods like sleeping or focusing or relaxing and I've been using it for about a week now and I definitely feel better and I feel like I'm managing my time better Mm. Um, and I feel like I'm being more positive and like more emotionally well but that might be because I just cried recently and I think I like let out a lot of stuff Mm. so I don't know if it's the app or the fact that I had a cry session one of the two it's probably both (laughs) what about you what are you recommending okay so i couldn't think of what to recommend and i was because i like normally just recommend what's my favorite thing in the moment and my favorite thing in the moment is 
Real Housewives of Atlanta. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's like, I just love it because I feel like a few of the cast members are like my alter ego. Mm. Like, I feel like in a different life, I would have been a wealthy housewife. And I, I think they're just so absurd, but I kind of love it because they're... I read them as, like, they stand up for themselves, I mm-hmm. feel like. You know, they don't let anybody mess with them. They don't let anybody fuck with them. And I admire that. And I also just think Nini is hilarious. She's... I just want her to be my friend. <laughs> um, but then the other thing that now I wanted to recommend after our conversation about national identity um, and borders is this book that is called Imagine Communities by Benedict Anderson. And he goes into the history of this concept of national identity and how it started. And he connects it to, his argument is that the birth of this concept was tied to capitalism and was tied to the circulation of print texts in a large scale that was the result of capitalism that then allowed people across different geographic space to imagine themselves as tied to those other people across geographic space because of the fact that they were reading the same things. So <laughs> I think it's important because like the, like these concepts really are new and, mm-hmm. and a lot of them really are tied to capitalism. So I recommend that. Ah, you also, <laughs> speaking of capitalism and how it produces oh. different products. <laughs> yes, good point. <laughs> Um, yeah, speaking of capitalism, Set of Rona is supported by studio headphones. Yeah, and what, I mean, we were talking about this earlier, right? About how, like, diversity of products comes from, like, a consumerist society. So you're able to have headphones that work really great and stuff because of so many different designs. This is not an endorsement of capitalism, to be clear. <laughs> but it's, this it's is an also- endorsement of the headphones, though. Yes. <laughs> Um, Which is the product of capitalism. (laughs) So if you're interested in the headphones, as a reminder, you can buy them from Studio and you will get a discount if you write Citibronas at checkout. Great. (laughs) Yvette, this was lovely. Yes, this was lovely. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Bye.